1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Cracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! And happy Paddy's Day, I guess, right? Like, if I'm a day ahead, so it's not St. Patrick's Day here, oh. but for you, it's Paddy's Day, right? It is. It's Paddy's Day in the colonies. In the colonies. St. Paddy's
2: Day for some of us.
1: Yes, well, so happy, happy Paddy's St. Patrick's Day for those of you that care, for those of you that don't care. That's cool. We're going to talk about movies today. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond.
2: Hey, everybody.
1: Happy to be here. And joining us, we've got Michael Burns. Feels so good to be back with you all. Excited for this. It's been a while since we've talked movies with Michael. I'm excited about this. So this week, we're doing something that we'd been hesitant to do for a little bit about addressing a Wes Anderson film. Um dressing. Yeah, well, addressing. <laughs> yeah, okay, like it's a scandal. Like we've been trying to not touch it. Um, investigating. But no, it, because we're kind of like, is there 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 or is it just all style and no substance? But I think there's a lot of there there. And especially in this film, which is an adaptation of a Roald Dahl classic childhood novel fantastic Mr. Fox from 2009. It stars all the usual suspects from a Wes Anderson film, plus George Clooney and Meryl Streep. So uh, that should give you an idea of who's involved. Do you say starring, by the way, when it's voice acting? Like, would I say I starred in a film as a voiceover yeah. actor? You do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you would, yeah. Okay, so they're still starring. Because you're
3: still the, the star. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's, and G- G- George Clooney's voice is clearly star quality
2: absolutely yeah i was gonna (laughs) say that's that's one of the things that uh, i was reading um uh, Matt Zoller cites his book, The The Wes Anderson Collection, and his interview Ooh. about Fantastic Mr. Fox with him in that, he asked him, was, was George Clooney just one of those guys you really wanted to work with? He said, Yeah, pretty much. You know, there's some some aspects that he shares with Fantastic Mr. Fox, but the real magic is just in that voice. He said once he started recording him, he was like, Yeah, this is just absolutely pain <laughs> <right here." laughs>
3: Yeah. I totally forgot that Meryl Streep was in this movie, um, because I hadn't seen
1: it since like it came out or whatever. And it was just a shock. Yeah, it was supposed to be, to be Kate Blanchett, I believe, and it was a last minute. See, that's more of a Wes
3: Anderson regular. Yeah.
1: So, okay, so let's go around and do some first impressions here. Uh, let's start with Michael. What was the, like the first time you saw this film? What was it like revisiting it? And what was it like watching it at one point two five speed?
3: Great. Um, oh man, you snitched on me. Um, <laughs> the first time. First time I watched this, I think I liked it. 2009. I was very much feeling like a twee Wes Anderson vibe. Ah, Yes. I think at that point in my life, I even was like, you know, fantastic Mr. Fox's fashion. I was like, I like, you know, the cut of this guy's jib. I like his style. I (laughs) I I think I liked it, but I didn't love it when I first saw it. And, you know, for me, this this comes in a period and we'll probably get to this. I am a pretty big Wes Anderson defender. I think this film comes at the tail end of his down period tail end, no pun intended. (laughs) Um, So I think it was at a time where I was skeptical about the last couple of films Wes Anderson had made. I was curious about the choice to, to make a film in this style and veer away from live action rewatching it. um, I I found it fucking delightful. Mm. I had a really nice time watching it. And I think watching it, detached from the stakes I would normally project onto a Wes Anderson film made it a better time mm. for me. Um, and, and I think I kind of lowered the bo- both like the, the aesthetic and maybe like kind of emotional stakes of it. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. And I, I think for me, it's a movie that has a, it just has one simple idea and it explores one simple idea in, in a fun and entertaining way. In my mind, I'm sure you all will, will tell me why it explores 19 interrelated ideas that, that mind the unconscious. But
2: yeah, but for me, just
3: I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. Really enjoy it. Raymond, what about you, brother? Uh,
2: I think it's a really fun movie. Um, I like a lot of Wes Anderson's work. Um, but I would actually agree with Michael that this this seems to be a little bit of a turning point. Maybe not so much a turning point as just like... I always think of this movie as kind of the one where he got his groove back a little bit. Because I I, I thought Life Aquatic and uh, Darjeeling Limited do fall more on the style side of of things than the substance side of things. It's not that there isn't some good stuff in there. But I, I think that he got to a point where he was just kind of like... There's some frames in darjeeling limited as as attentively detailed and crafted as that film may be where it just feels like he's trying to cram as much shit as possible in, in into the frame and this one definitely feels like not only uh, an interesting distillation of his style but because it's tailored for you know a four quadrant audience because it's aimed at kids a little bit I think it's it's to the film's credit he keeps it a little bit simpler um you know it's it's not as esoteric as a lot of his other films are there's it's a little bit easier to follow it's much more straightforward like Michael said it's it's got one idea it plays it to the hilt um and the the characters are clear it's fun it's funny and engaging um uh, do I think it's his best movie? No, but I uh, I think it's a really interesting one in his filmography.
1: I mean, maybe one of the reasons why, and we can talk about this on the uh, other side of the recap, is that it's an adaptation of a story by a very accomplished storyteller who writes very simple, accessible, but very sort of rich stories for... Uh, I would say for kind of all audiences, right? Like I can still read a Roald doll novel and really enjoy the crap out of them. So um, I, I've only seen this film twice. I saw it when it first came out and um, I too had a sort of like um, moment of, of twee um, sensibility. And so I saw this around that same time and uh, then I watched it last night and Listen, when I first saw it, I I think I bought into the hype because I was like, oh, this is a Wes Anderson film. And so I really loved it, actually. But it was more like I think I loved it because I was just trying to be cool within like hipster twee kind of communities and cultures. And that's like what you're supposed to say. Of course, you love Wes Anderson and of course, you love Zoe Deschanel. And, you know, of course, you love those things because that's just part of the world. Um, But to be honest, I I watched it last night and I was kind of like, yeah, it's good. Like, it's fine like it's it's an enjoyable film. I'm glad it exists. Um, I actually do think there's a lot of richness there. I think when people talk about the kind of Wes Anderson style over substance thing, I think they really miss out on a lot of what it is that he's exploring. He reminds me it's not the same, but somebody like Miyazaki, who is really sort of just um, enchanted with childhood uh, and that battle between adulthood and and youth and things like that and uh, this film is also about like consumerism. I mean Anderson famously said that this film was uh communists so sorry out there to um you know mr who was it mr like naked pants or whatever it was that challenged me. mr
2: i hate austin yeah Yeah, he challenged me
1: a guy challenged me to do one episode without talking about capitalism and communism and he said he'd buy me a beer if i did it and so last week i did and so i'm like yo where's my beer but this week This week the challenge is over because Wes Anderson himself said it was a communist film. So, I mean, we can talk about that. And so I think – and there's some existentialist themes, you know, about like I am what I am. I mean, there's stuff like that. But I even think that the style itself is actually really rich and worth exploring. So – I I don't want to sound like I'm down on the film, but I love, like, Life Aquatic, and I love um, the Royal Tenenbaums, and so I love some of his other films, whereas this one, I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's good, and it's enjoyable, and I'm glad it exists, and if I ever have children, I would love for them to watch something like this, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so before we jump into the film, uh, let's just do a quick recap for y'all. Basically, while raiding a farm early on in the film, Mr. Fox and his wife Felicity are captured, In the cage, she reveals that she's pregnant and fed up with his life of crime and asks him to find a new career. He agrees. Fast forward two years later, 12 fox years, the foxes are living in a hole with their son, Ash. Mr. Fox has gone straight and is now a newspaper columnist, but he's tired of living in a hole, so he decides to move his family into a lovely tree, but it's in the middle of a quite dangerous area in the vicinity of three feared farmers, Bogus, Bunce, Bunce, and Bean. Soon after, Felicity's nephew comes to stay with the fam, Christofferson, and Ash finds his cousin pretty much insufferable, mainly because Christofferson is better than Ash at just about everything, and everybody loves Christofferson. So uh, Mr. Fox, however, longing for his days as a thief, he and his possum friend decide to get back into some criminal activities, and they steal produce and poultry from all three farmers for three straight nights the farmers of course get pissed and they decide to try to kill mr fox but they only manage to shoot off his tail the farmers do however destroy the site of the tree house while fox and the crew dig underground to safety and while underground felicity learns of mr fox's thievery and life of crime and gets all upset about his reversion back to that old world Mr. Fox then starts to begin to rally the other local animals whose homes have also been destroyed by the farmers, and so he leads them on a mission to take from the rich and give to the poor, that is, take from the farmers and give to the local animal families. Christopherson ends up getting captured by the farmers, however, and he's used his bait to lure the bandits into an ambush. Mr. Fox surfaces and fights Rat, and before dying, Rat tells of Christopherson's location, and as the farmers are preparing for an ambush, the animals anticipate it, And Fox and crew are able to enter into the farm and free Christopherson, and then they all escape safely. The film ends with the animals settling into their new home in the sewers, where all are free to come and hang with one another. And we close with Fox and Fam raiding a grocery store that belongs to the farmers, with Felicity revealing that she is pregnant again. And so everyone dances in the aisles of the store Finn. Okay, before we get into the show, we got to give a quick shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Skillshare. We've talked about Skillshare a lot on this podcast. We love them. They are an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you're passionate about, especially while things are difficult and we're isolated right now and in lockdown. It's so good to be able to have these types of online communities. This is why Skillshare is so cool. You can unleash your creativity and pursue passions right from the convenience of your home. They offer thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics such as iPhone photography, drone filming, editing, classes on improving productivity, video for IG, Artivism that is creating inspiring art for social change. The one that really gets me excited, I'm actually going to do it this week, is classes on improving productivity. Um, I feel like you can always, as a creative, it, read a book or take a class or have a conversation with somebody that just fires you up, that stokes you to remind you of why you're doing what you're doing and how it's actually awesome to do the things that you love to do. And so, this class is so cool because it's a way to help you to give you some practical steps to improve. Productivity so you can actually do the things that you want to do. So to explore your creativity and connect with some cool people, go to skillshare.com slash SMTM. That's Skillshare.com slash SMTM as in show me the meaning. Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you get a free trial of their premium membership. So that's Skillshare.com slash SMTM or click a link in the show notes. So, all right, first things first. The really heavy, thick theme of this film is it's like a Robin Hood tale, right? Rob from the rich, give to the poor. So what is our obsession with Robin Hood films? Why do we love the Robin Hood story so much? They're always so popular too. Like my favorite Disney film, I know it's totally like not cool to say, but is the 1970s Robin Hood Disney film, The Fox, who also was a fox, right? I love it. So, so what's the deal with like Robin Hood? Why do we love Robin Hood stories so much?
2: Michael,
3: what I mean, do is do you it, got? Is it, Well, I don't know. <laughs> is it is it because in our normal lives, if there is such thing, and if we'll, if we'll say this is real, like a, a cultural superego or dominating ideology, it's one that makes us feel like we don't have power in our hands. We don't have someone who's looking out for us. And when I say us, those of us that aren't like mega rich, wealthy or powerful, so that the allure of the Robin Hood myth is, is the idea that there is a, a an element, a person, a subject in society, in a place whose sole purpose is the redistribution of wealth to the masses, to the people, this sort of like for the people figure. And I think that's something we want. I mean, even going back to like, uh, and it's not quite the same, but like a Spartacus type figure, even this, this one individual that represents all of us having better lives, someone that's a looking out for the little people, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, That's what I would think. There's something to be said for, for that idea.
2: Yeah, it's nice to think that there's like a some kind of corrective energy that's like waiting to be activated out there. But I think it is very telling that even even nestled within that though, it's still reliant on the individual as like a figurehead. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the other thing too about this movie specifically is that while... Well, Robin Hood certainly took a lot of risks in uh, in his own story. uh, Mr. Fox really like he he swings for the electric fences in this one. Like (laughs) like they they follow him for better and worse and worse and worse. On some like so there there is there is a little bit of balance to that. Uh, I I do understand it as um uh uh, I, I appreciate the sentiment of the uh the the collective obviously, but. Uh, At the end of the day, they still. I think Wes Anderson is pretty smart about kind of scrutinizing the individual that they're following.
1: Hmm. Do you think that? uh, Do you think that there's something kind of funny too about how he's just trying to steal some food for his family, and like they're just trying to get like basic survival stuff, and the farmers like we're gonna kill you. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I love. That's one of the things that is um is really. There's a, a really good beat in this when. All, all three farmers are so on board with this. They're all gung-ho about going in there. We're going to uproot the tree. And then when when the animals start just burrowing straight into the stockyards and, and stealing the chickens straight from the farm and stuff, they immediately boomerang on uh, on uh, Michael Gambon's character, and they go, you made it so much worse. This is way worse. We never should have done this. We should have just let him have a few chickens. <laughs> uh it's just
1: once I mean, again it's interesting uh yeah. oh
2: sorry there's there's kind of a a, a a mirror effect happening with those two sort of following beans lead but go ahead michael sorry
3: no i was just gonna say it's yeah it's also interesting too that like any of those sort of uh what we'll say communists in, in the more ideological people helping people type sense um the communist elements of it come from this initial desire for sustenance like yeah dude's got to eat Dude steals some chickens, but some of that leads down the rabbit hole. I'll make a huge leap here and say it reminds me a little bit of in Plato's Republic when the Socrates character talks about how like economies and politics build out of simple desires. And as soon as we have some more like nice shit, all of a sudden we're like, "Ooh, I kind of like that. I I want to trade with this person a little bit, but now someone wants to mess with my stuff. Oh, now we have the invention of war. So we kind of see one individual's desire for some tasty chicken, and I'm never (laughs) going to be mad at that turn into like a whole new mode of underground animal existence.
1: Yeah. I thought it was really interesting too. I feel like there's this interesting, like these three acts you could almost say that are, so you open with Mr. Fox as criminal and as criminal, there's a little bit of tension with his wife because that's like, those are youthful activities, but I'm pregnant. I need kind of stable domestic stability. I need that. So then there's stage two, which is okay. Now he's trying to go straight, but there's the secret life of crime. Right? So he's trying to go straight, but the but there's the secret. There's a, the, he, he's
2: kind of scratching an itch a little bit. Yeah, just a little. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she
1: doesn't know about it, so there's still tension. And this is really interesting, too, because we can talk about this in the context of Wes Anderson films. He always has perfect form and structure, but chaos right under the surface, or sometimes bursting out, right? Like in Grand Budapest Hotel, it's Ray Fines just getting so angry and dropping "fuck" every once in a while, and you're like, "Whoa, this is like a straight laced, you know, uh, hotel hotel figure." Like, how is he uh, engaging in this type of activity? You know, like that seems kind of weird. There's, there's chaos.
2: There's that one shot that's the perfect illustration of that, where he's totally buttoned down as Edward Norton is reading them the Riot Act, and then just out of nowhere, he goes from Runs. zero to a hundred and he races into the <laughs> yeah, background. Yeah. 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 yeah,
1: so that's a very Wes Anderson thing in the juxtaposition is great right so you've got he's holding it all together and then the final the way the film ends is it's almost like they've accepted who they are Mr. Fox is constantly like I'm a wild animal this is who I am and then it's like he's accepting who he is his wife is kind of his his family is kind of like they've figured out how to have both she's pregnant again and they're very happy about it and they're dancing about it but at the same time they're doing it while doing crime so it's kind of like that's the synthesis right
2: there is also a little bit. I don't, I don't know if it's uh uh maybe subconscious or not, but all of his uh you know I'm a wild animal. It always rings just a tad bit hollow because he's mm. still the he's still the guy who's he's I mean or fox rather who's dressed nice and dapper. And uh, even at the end where they embrace the the wilderness or the the, the wild aspects of their nature, it's still set against. A backdrop of modernity like it's either the supermarket that they go up and steal from or it's the the modern sewer system that they now live in there's still this yeah. notion of like of progress and industrialization that like it, it does kind of feel like you know the 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 old uh, 45 or 50 year old who's who's getting ready to go to a concert and like yeah I can rock out like I used to but uh, maybe I'm going to yeah. take a, a few steps back from the front row
3: yeah, well you're saying there too makes it like connects with what uh, Austin was just saying about the Ray Fine character in uh Grand Budapest, who like yells out fuck every now and then. I do like how there's the moments where the animals act like animals. Like yes. in that opening scene yes. when they're in the house, and he's like eating breakfast and it's like, oh, it's normal <laughs> stuff. And then he goes batshit <laughs> crazy, eating food. Yeah. And then his wife at one point is like, I'm about to be angry. And then slashes his yeah. face open. Um and then he makes you think a little bit like of and I know this is just Wes Anderson loves these type of characters. You know, it's not too different from like You know, Royal Tenenbaum, this guy that, you know, has the air of a man of society, but who's just like a reckless bastard underneath, ready at any point to like be exposed and having that kind of tension between basically people who, and I think this is what Danny Glover calls Royal and the Royal Tenenbaums. He says like, I don't think you're an asshole, just sort of a son of a bitch Mm. at the end of the film. And I think Wes Anderson loves son of a bitch characters Mm. that we kind of root for, but underneath the surface a lot of chaos and and sort of mis, misplaced desires going
2: on yeah there's a lot of attention a lot of attention to decorum despite their like <laughs> very, to, very to hide obsessions yeah yeah, yeah.
1: And, and they're they're son of a bitches but they're not assholes and that's kind of the, there's there's and this might be part of like the twee-ness of wes anderson yeah. is that he doesn't really go deep and dark into like Like, the evils of humanity or something like that. It's kind of like, oh, they just kind of suck. They're just kind of sons of bitches. Like, even the farmers, like, they're doing some pretty crappy stuff, but they don't, they're not, like, presented as evil, right? And that's, that's, he doesn't really do that too much. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how you think. Like, yeah, they're trying to kill a guy for stealing some food. That's kind of evil. But they kind of just suck. Yeah. You know, but they kind of suck in. I mean, I guess yeah. it's a children's thing too. But they suck in like and they're a like kid idiots way. Way. too. Yeah, and they're idiots. And but again, that's yeah. kind of playful. Like ooh, ooh, ooh! Look at the the dumb guys. Look at the dumb idiots. But again, there's a, a levity to it rather than like. And I think that's because he always stays at that level. That sort of like that kind of safe. I don't know if it's safe. Is it childish? What is it? It's it's that tweenness that people always talk about and. What do we think? Like, what's what's he doing there? Like in his own character exploration? It's all. Yeah, I, th-
2: I think there is uh, maybe an interplay from some of the stuff we're talking about, like the decorum, the civility, people who uh, project an idea of who they want to be. Um, but they, they have these these urges, or in this case, an animal instinct or something. It's it's funny, this, this movie, out of anything in his filmography, reminds me most of his first film, Bottle Rocket, because that's his other quasi-heist movie. And in that one, it's like, you know, a handful of, it seems to be very sweet young men who just want to be robbers because there's like this cowboy kind of notion surrounding it and the the they knock off a bookstore and get like 200 bucks or something and then they hit the road acting like they've they're bonnie and clyde or whatever it, there there is this this current running through a lot of his stuff this this notion of like well i you know i'm either straight laced or i want to appear to be straight laced Uh, but I also, I also want to believe that I'm cool. And this is the, the idea of what's cool. This is, uh, what, what culture has told me is, is really neat to be the, the, the lone cowboy fucking breaking into a cooling storage unit so I can steal from a safe.
1: Hmm.
3: Yeah. I mean, do you guys think like, and I guess this relates to the tweenist question, Austin, do we think he's kind of like copying out by always having characters that are never just truly bad? Because even mm. the worst character in a Wes Anderson movie, we're meant to see like, oh, but they experienced this trauma, uh, but they're really um, repressing this this hurt or negativity or whatever. So even like, you know, the Owen Wilson character in, in Royal Tenenbaums, um, Total Bastard. Um, oh, what's his name again? It's Eli Cash. You're like, yeah, this is going to kill me. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, But, like, we feel for him by the end, even when he's, like, doing, like, weird coke deals with Egyptian art dealers or something and running away. Um, And I wonder, I think for some people, that's what they like about Wes Anderson. Yeah. That You watch his films and everyone's, like, kind of relatable and, and nice and they're trying their best and, hey, that's what I'm like. I'm going to go listen to Van Morrison B-Sides now. But do we think that's him avoiding the potential for like larger stakes in his storytelling and character development by really maybe leaning into some people that are just pieces of shit?
1: So there's a book by Mark Spitz who is uh, an author and music journalist. It's called Twee, The Gentle Revolution in Music, Books, Television, Fashion, and Film. Mm. And he argues that it is in fact that Thuy, uh is or was the most powerful youth movement since, since punk and hip-hop. Um, And he basically, this is what he argues the ethics of twee is. A preference for beauty over ugliness, a sharp, almost incapacitating awareness of darkness, death, and cruelty, which clashes with our steadfast focus on our essential goodness, a tether to childhood and its attendant innocence and lack of greed, the utter dispensing with of the word cool, as it's conventionally known, often in favor of a kind of Fetishization of the nerd, the geek, the dork, the virgin, a healthy suspicion of adulthood, an interest in sex but a wariness and shyness when it comes to the deed, a lust for knowledge, (laughs) whether it's the sequence of an album, the supporting players in an old Hal Ashby or Robert Altman film, the lesser-known Judy Bloom books, or how to grow the perfect purple Italian or Chinese eggplant or orange cauliflower, The cultivation of a passion project, whether it's a band, a zine, an indie film, a website, or a food or clothing company, whatever it is, in the eye of the twee, it is a force of good and something to live for. And then he says that throughout this list, that there is actually a political philosophy here. And the political philosophy is anti-greed and suspicious of an adult world that revolves around avarice and that humanity... Uh, Is aware, the Twee, I'm sorry, the Twee is aware of humanity's capacity for violence and evil, but chooses to be optimistic about human nature nonetheless. And so he thinks there's a progressive stance to it, but it is a very, maybe low stakes choice in the political conflict or the social and ethical landscape. I don't know. What do we think? Silence. I'm
3: just unpacking. Mark Spitz is brilliant. (laughs) Um, Also, rest in peace, because I think he's dead. Um, sorry to make it dark. I did. I did. I brought in the darkness. Yeah, no, I think there's something to that because even bringing up violence in there, too, because violence is always done. I mean, I, I would say that's maybe one thing that counteracts what I had just said and what that says about Anderson, where he often does have moments of real violence um, that pop in to sort of like disturb and wake up the audience from the twee fantasy, whether that's like Richie Tenenbaum slitting his wrist or uh, what is it? The shark eating someone in life aquatic aquatic, yeah yeah mother shark i haven't seen it for a while yeah yeah um but then like thinking about the the twee political philosophy for me reminds me of like well intentioned people that end up doing nothing and being completely co-opted by systems of power um it even reminds me of like in the recent adam curtis can't get you out of my head when he shows this like difference in the early 60s of kind of like radical political movements often led by marginalized people mm. and the late 60s like college students trying to be like good sweet people who like did community organizing and at night like smoked weed and danced. Mm. But then all ended up like becoming players in the system. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about this twee political philosophy? I've never thought of it this way before.
2: I, I think in some ways, uh, someone just uh, threw out in the comments here, Jacob B said, twee is just the new way for us to survive under capitalism. We return to childhood naive optimism where our understanding of gender, aesthetic, death, and so on is only in the abstract. Mm. Uh, mm. I think you might be hitting on something there because I, I when, when I hear the word twee, the very first thing I think of is urban outfitters. Uh, like the, in 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 a weird way that, that like the very notion of that has become commercialized or commodified and uh in a certain way it it does it does seem like a um uh I don't necessarily know that I would I would brand it with like the woke capitalism distinction or anything mm-hmm. like that but it is it is sort of like the soft Instagramming of capitalism. It's like the, 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 not necessarily the, the self-help branch of capitalism, but it's, it's associated with that where it's like, it, it is as much about crafting your personality as it is about feeding a system. Like that's the, that's the, the, the real sort of lifestyle that's being sold. If that, if that means anything.
1: See, when I think of twee, I think of like contemporary, I wonder like movements in like cottage core, like the cottage core aesthetic and, like the DIY culture and stuff like that, that seems to have a sort of like more contemporary, because twee has been a term that's been around for what like 20-ish years, right? So maybe there's...
3: I I see, Austin, I wonder if you're describing like second wave twee. I wonder
1: if there's like a first wave (laughs) twee that was like early 2000s,
3: kind of corny. And if second wave twee... Is that? But maybe someone who's a little more aware—they have their garden, they make kombucha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them and their friends like hang out and do like crafts, and it's all about making stuff and like being involved in the process. You know, yeah. like I kind of like that version better. But I think there's a distinction
1: there. Yeah, definitely. And I don't, I don't think that it's. I oftentimes like twee hipster culture gets mocked, um, but I do think that there's like a, a sincere expression here. Like when I look at Wes Anderson's films, this is why I don't think it's just. ...style with no substance, I think that there's a genuine sincerity that's really trying to, rather than be critical, and maybe that's what a lot of film people want, they want someone who's gonna, like, make a strong, bold statement about, like, this thing is good or bad, and he kind of tends to just present these characters that are really quite human... Maybe in what we would call low-stakes environment, but nevertheless, there are stakes there. You know, there is a little bit of a chaos there. There's, like, this radical structure that's imposed that is kind of the juxtaposition of the kind of, like, chaotic uh, underbelly, Um, but that there's something kind of sweet about people struggling, or there's sweet about Mr. Fox trying to understand who he is. There's something sweet about... Felicity saying to Fox, hey, you're a criminal. But it's not like he's a, a mean, hardened criminal. He's kind of like, just kind of doing what he's got to do. And she's like, babe, come on. Like, I get it, but I got a kid now, you know? So there's like this, there's this niceness. There's a sweetness about it, but this calling us to be better people. So I think there is still a challenge that's being invoked in a sort of twee ethos that you see in Wes Anderson's films, you know? People that are either bad people, son of a bitches, or assholes or people that are kind of like nice, you know, they're just trying to do their damn best or they're trying to avenge their fallen comrade in uh, the Life Aquatic, right? Like, but there's something sincere or, or about who, it. At um,
2: yeah, at the at the very least, I, I think one of the things that runs through most of his films is folks struggling with like their own identity and, and just how best to express themselves. And um, I, I mean... I I don't think it would be ungenerous to describe the royal tenenbaums as an entire family having an identity crisis at once. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, yeah, um yeah. It, you know, you do you do different. kind of see that stuff uh, uh, run through uh, a lot of his films.
3: Yeah, I wonder. So there's a quote I liked that I feel like applies to what we're talking about right now. I'm wondering what you guys think about it. But it's a point where the fantastic Mr. Fox says, um, "Who am I? How can a fox ever be happy without a chicken in its teeth?" You'll excuse um, the expression yeah um yeah Uh, but i just like i don't know and right and and right before he says that he says something like i'm getting a i don't know existential but that line in particular i wonder if i'm over reading like reading too much into it but the how can a fox ever be happy without a chicken in his teeth i find really interesting well one there's a a violent there's a violence our our nature versus everything yeah and
1: there's a real violence in the imagery right which is why he's like excuse me right like like How can a fox ever be happy without destroying another body by tearing it apart with my sharp teeth and it's like soft, fleshy limbs? That's really what he's saying. So there's like immediately this violence there. And it's like, how can I be happy without doing that thing? Because that's part of my nature. So there's a sense and it's like, how can I ever be happy without being true to who I am?
2: But then there's also the fact that because of how he and all the animals in this film are anthropomorphized, there's also this notion of like, this is the, this is what he believes a fox to be. Maybe because of societal pressure, Ooh. like within the yeah. the the sort of like uh, themes of this film, that yes, there you can make the. The natural instinctual argument for it, but he also walks on two legs and uh, wears suits and <laughs> ties, and was carrying a cane and all the concept art and stuff. So yeah. it, I, it, I, I, I see where you're going with that, but I also think that that may be. Whether intentional or not, it's one of those things that jumps out to me as as him reckoning with like the societal pressure of what it means to be a a patriarch or a paternal presence, at least in his family's lives and how how best to provide for them and uh, how to also maintain his own sense of identity while having to give so much over to them as a family and as a provider. Yeah,
3: it's interesting, too, that like it seems to me that in the, the last third of the film, it is the embrace of animality itself that saves the day. Um, you know the scene where he like and I like how he's using all the animals Latin names all being like what can you do what's your skill what's your skill and, this idea, and the same way that Fast. like yeah um, like, explosives bang boom blast it's like okay classic badger um, move, yeah yeah. but you know and I like when Ash the son who I think is voiced by Jason yep. um, well you know the whole film he's just like I want to be an athlete am I an athlete do you see me as an athlete am I big and in the last bit how does he save the day by saying I'm small Mm. and it's a sort of embrace of the animality embrace of like this, like natural aspects gets them somewhere, which I thought was like a nice, not resolution, but nice way to play out that tension between like the animal existence and the societal existence that we see in fantastic mr fox
1: mm. yeah it is it is a real existential crisis too like it is a real existential crisis that mr fox is going through which is kind of nice like he's really like this goes to like raymond's point i think he actually is kind of like shoot like what does it really mean to be a friggin' fox man i want to tear some chickens apart but maybe that desire itself has been manufactured maybe i shouldn't want to live a life where i'm eating some chickens and tearing them apart and what would that look like could i do that like would i even be me like is it possible I don't know. I think that's kind of deep, man.
3: Yeah, I used to live next to a really good fried chicken place when I lived in Baltimore. And when I moved away, I thought, "Am I still me <laughs> if I'm not eating fried chicken with honey hot sauce at one?" What is a AM? burns
2: without some fried chicken between? Yeah, two. if
3: I'm not just like assaulting my body with bad cholesterol right before sleep.
1: So I get it. So, so to me, this is a really relatable. Film, I was crying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, what do we think then about? Um, Wes Anderson's aesthetic like are we tired of it do we dig it like it gets a lot of attention and it's clearly unique when you see a Wes Anderson film you show me a trailer I know that it's a Wes Anderson film there's literally nobody like him there are a couple people who try to emulate it in certain projects here and there but not even really not even real copycats like what do we think of his style
2: the trailer for his newest film is the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson thing I think I've ever seen.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it looks I kinda like, like though, cause that because he's I'm, like leaning into it. It's like yo, what yo, was, absolutely. He's like accelerating his Wes Andersonism. I kind of dig it.
2: Yeah, I I uh, to answer your question though, Austin, I I think it takes all kinds of kinds. You know, we we we've yeah. got Wes Anderson over in his corner doing his thing. <laughs> he's gonna inspire uh, some folks to to ape him, some folks to hate him, but. Uh, Hey, I think that the uh, the uh, American film landscape is all the richer for having more and uh, yeah. more unique voices mm. out there trying their own uh, well, trying their own it's style. Like,
3: yeah, it's like you said, Austin. Like you can always tell when you see a Wes Anderson, you know, film. I mean, how many filmmakers left that make movies that are put in cinemas across the country are made by filmmakers who are writing and directing their own films? And you can tell it's them within three seconds. And I feel like we're moving away from that really aggressively. There's only a few people like that. And I think whether you love him or hate him, I think that's valuable and, and a valuable part of like the cinema community. And if you're like a young person who wants to make films, it's still the sort of person you can look at and be like, this is some fucking dude from Austin, Texas who just started making movies with his friends and made movies that weren't about popular themes, weren't about the things you are supposed to make a movie about, but has really found a lane. So even if you like fucking hate his movies, it's an interesting creative trajectory he's
2: taken. I, I think I remember reading something that like Quentin Tarantino became aware of what directing was because he saw Sergio Leone do the same thing in two different movies. And he was like, oh, that's what a director does. And I think there there is something to that, that if you can isolate that, that, that notion that there is someone behind the camera, a, a team of people who are making these choices, who are bringing these things to life. You know, when I was a kid, I would turn on a movie and you just think like, oh, yeah, they just... Roll a camera and these people say their lines. You don't think about the, the wardrobe, the set design, and what have you. But when you do have big, bold, visionary filmmakers, even if they're not necessarily for you, I think it does help open people's minds and inspire them to think about film as a craft, not necessarily just as entertainment.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's true, and this just came to my mind. I wonder, there are some filmmakers that seem to inspire laterally. And what I mean is, like, someone like Martin Scorsese is somebody who inspires people uh, that are of his age, and even people who are older than him. And they're like, oh, fuck, like, I, I gotta learn from this guy. I feel like Wes Anderson has maybe more of, like, a downward influence. And what I mean by that is, like, people that are younger... And so I wonder if we're only just now starting to get to the age where the filmmakers who might be more uh, 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 apparently inspired by or influenced by Wes Anderson are going to start creating that kind of content. But we might not see it in the auteur sense, but we might see it in – like. It's twee 2.0 right like a uh, second wave twee netflix steer- series or is like the meta modern like new sincerity stuff is that going to enfold some of wes anderson's influence but it feels like like zoomers millennials who are now uh, maybe older millennials they're the ones who are going to start kind of making more stuff that has the fingerprints you know
2: i i think that wes anderson's style has been pretty pretty effectively absorbed in a lot of uh what you might call like the Sundance type movie, you yeah. know, the, the Junos and the Little Miss Sunshines of the world. Not to say that those movies are totally derivative or anything. I think they they have their merits. Um, but I think there are a lot of movies that have already adopted aspects of his style, whether it's the the planimetric framing or the very bright compositions, the, the really bright, snappy wardrobe. Uh, I remember uh, an interview with Edgar Wright where he said something to the effect of uh, he always wants his characters to be easy to draw for the fans. That if, if you can imagine mm. one of his characters you should be able to imagine a key piece of wardrobe or something like that i think wes anderson is one of the standard bearers of that approach that he he has these sort of indelible character designs that sometimes paper over the fact that his characters are some kind sometimes kind of caricature-y more so than actual real humans
3: Hmm. yeah i think he's had like an influence as well like outside of cinema um in Mm. spaces like i don't know like even the show um Oh, uh, what's it called? How To with John Wilson, recent HBO sure. show that's like a documentary thing but the way in which this John Wilson guy looks at New York City and, and embraces like the quirkiness and the people that are living like their alternative lives I think is something that has some Wes Anderson DNA in it and I'm embarrassed to bring this up because I'm currently wearing a piece of his merch right <laughs> now. But uh, the comedian Joe Para and his show Joe Para Talks With Talks You with on you. Adult yeah. Swim which everyone should watch if you ever watch it. It's so good. But it's super twee in a sense in that it's earnest the characters have a lot of their own individual quirks it's set in like you know a random town in the upper peninsula of michigan and it embraces a weirdness and a sweetness um that i do think like comes from that wes anderson dna hmm. shout out to the there's a lot connor, of the connor like, o'malley on that show oh best. my god yeah. shout anything connor o'malley does i will die oh, for it. sorry for cutting you off michael no, I'm just screaming about Conor O'Malley. <laughs> all I was saying before, it's like some of the films you mentioned before, what, you said like Juno and Little Miss Sunshine, right? Films, did I enjoy those when I saw those in the theater and maybe afterwards? Sure. Will I ever watch either of those movies again in my fucking life? I truly don't know. But I know I'm going to watch probably every Wes Anderson film a few more times, some more than others mm.
2: from here until I eventually die
3: from okay, so what O'Malley's is
1: Okay, so what is it that you love about him <laughs> well, so much? Yeah, like...
2: Speak, speaking of his style, before we move on, I just want to uh, say San Witt in the chat says, all three of them look the same, referring to the three of us. Uh. This video looks like it is directed by Wes Anderson. Just saying.
1: Yes. And then a little nail there.
2: painting emoji. She's kind of dunking on us there. I mean, you're
3: not wrong even <laughs> a little bit at all. It's three different versions of the same thing. It'd be like if you got three vanilla shakes, but one was like vanilla malt and one was like vanilla that has like some sea salt and one was classic vanilla. It's still three fucking vanilla shakes, you know? Well, I would would be
2: uh, only so happy for us uh, to be considered the next Wilson, the Wilson brothers. I think uh, (laughs) Luke, Owen, and Andrew, they got nothing on us. (laughs) Wow,
3: the third, every brother pair always has a third that no one knows who they really are, like the Hemsworths. (laughs) You know, you have like, Brother, one A and one B, and then just this random dude. We're like, "Who are you? Why are you with
1: this premiere? Yeah. Where's your pad?" Well, aren't there like four Baldwin's? Yeah, Andrew the never Baldwin's really have took about That are kind of like, huh?
3: Don't they have like nine of them total? Those, you know, reproducing
1: mix. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. My favorite is the yeah, my They're Favorite they're, is the evangelical like not get them in wild. biodome? He's my favorite.
3: Uh-huh. <laughs> um, oh yeah, yeah. But so I guess real quick, just to say, like, I don't know. I think one of the reasons that I like Wes Anderson over time is the same reason why we eat the same dishes over time. The same reason Mm. why occasionally I order a beer that I've had a million times, whatever, because I know what it is. It has its own character, its own perspective, and it's not going to like change my life. I don't expect like whenever French dispatch comes out, I don't expect to leave the theater being like, wow, I saw something completely new. Mm. Wow. My eyes have been opened up to a new possibility in storytelling. But I'm going to feel like that was a good hang. Mm. I spent 90 to 120 minutes in a world that Wes Anderson created that probably doesn't remind me of anything else that's out right now um, that also features performances from people that I like because they go all in on his thing.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: you definitely know what
1: you're getting with a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, that's the one thing I was I was watching a little like video essay on Wes Anderson, and um, I was thinking about how he gets the actors to buy in to just the vibe of what he's doing, right? Like it's a little bit a little bit over the top sometimes and kind of cartoony, but it it never feels outlandish. It never feels off pitch. But the fact that he's able to get um, people from Willem Dafoe, whose character in Life Aquatic is fantastic, to Rafe Fiennes, to, um, you know, the, the kind of Gene Hackman? eccentric roles that you have in some of his... <laughs> yeah, like, like it's, it's impressive that he gets these people to just buy in, you know? And he got Meryl Streep uh, in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Now, I know you don't see her face... But again, there's something kind of Still. amazing about him being able to be like, okay, Queen Meryl, um, can you just buy into this fun project for me? Yeah. You know, it's or fucking like Bill Murray, who
3: doesn't have an agent, doesn't do anything, <laughs> but Wes Anderson like writes him a fucking postcard, and Bill Murray's like, yeah, where do yeah, I go? Yeah, where do
1: I go? Yeah, yeah.
3: And I just think, I mean, once again, I'm not, I'm not trying to do some like weird Murray obsession. He's fine, but it's just interesting that someone with that much cachet at this point in his career. Wes Anderson's one of like the maybe three, I guess like what him, Jim Jarmusch and maybe uh Sofia Coppola, or like Sophia Coppola are like three people that Bill Murray. Yeah. Picks up the phone for. Yeah,
2: that's, it is. And special. not, not only that, but if you watch mm. the behind the scenes on fantastic, Mr. Fox, Bill mm. Murray was like hanging out with Wes Anderson throughout production. He would just show up randomly to see how things are coming along. Like he seems to be really invested in their creative
1: partnership. Mm. That's fun. That is fun. Okay. Um, Final thoughts before we jump into the mailbag. Anything to say? Do we love it? Leave it? See it? What do we think? Raymond?
2: Uh, I think it's a good picture. If you like Wes Anderson's whole vibe, uh, you'll probably enjoy it. If Wes Anderson annoys you, this one will probably annoy you.
3: (laughs) Yeah. If you don't like Wes Anderson, don't watch it. If you can deal with him, even tolerate him, it's a good hang. It's a good hang. And I would think especially if I had children and wanted to watch something with my kids that they would enjoy, that I would like to, this one really hits a sweet spot there. Definitely. So those of you with kids, watch it with them and report back.
4: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
1: Awesome. Okay, so now we're going to jump into the mailbag. We're going to answer some voicemails first, and then I'll try to get to a couple of emails. If you want to call in and talk to us about why you love Wes Anderson, what you think about twee culture, if you are yourself a part of twee culture, tell us, is there a stage two? Is there a second wave of twee? Inform us. Let us know what is going on in the world at the moment. You can call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's one 1-2-1-3. 213 Five three four eight eight zero seven. The first voicemail that we're going to look at is from Jacob, who wants to chat about Hook. Go ahead, Jacob.
5: Show me me Wisecraft Crew. Jacob calling again. I know it's been a long time since I left a voicemail for you guys, but you had such a great lineup of movie reviews. I just had a call in to calling on Hook. Hook is probably one of my favorite movies. I wanted to call. I'm calling in because after this rewatch, I realized one thing. More, the more, mortality versus, uh, death. Uh, honestly, in the film, there's a lot of symbolism of, uh, mortality and death than in the original Peter Pan movie or book, depending on which one you are. Um, you have Hook, which is, iron gets ironically killed by the crocodile who he says he stuffed into a clock, which is ironic, which is the symbol of death for him. You have the Peter Pan sword, which, um, Davio's character or Dante Bosco's character gets killed by a sword by Captain Hook, I believe. And then you have food, the food scene of where they're eating nothing but food and they have to imagine, it, imagine food to eat. I just want to know what you guys honestly thought about like the relationship between like the original book and any interpretations of Peter Pan with life and death. And if this interpretation really hammers home life and death, it's like Neverland's a place where you never ate or like really never you really never die, so... Hey, thanks, guys, I for staying safe during all this craziness and all
1: the weather. Awesome. Yeah, and that really sort of um, exacerbates the point that Raymond brought up about how they just do Rufio dirty, right? Like, if no one ever dies in Neverland, and he gets freaking murdered... Like, that should even be more of a chaotic moment or more of a, a traumatic experience, but it seems to be kind of brushed over. So what do you there, think?
2: There is that, but the the other side of that argument, to to argue against myself, essentially, is that because no one dies in Neverland, they, they do have... At one point, I remember uh, in that movie, Robin Williams asks Rufio, he goes... What you know? Where, where are your parents? Where is your mother? What do you do? And Rufio just kind of shrugs and goes, eh, "We kill pirates." And that, that's like, I think that's kind of the the nasty side of uh, of eternity or eternal life, sort of rearing its ugly head. That like, what do you do when you never age? Do, do you get bored? And when you get bored, do you have to just like? Gin up these uh, like acts of aggression against the weird adults on the other side of the island to all play pirate all day while you guys are playing like Swiss Family Robinson. Um, so th- that is something that that uh, just sort of popped off in my head when uh, when that voicemail came in. I I like the notion that they they do just have to manufacture these uh, these weird little skirmishes because it's the only thing that can can keep their attention.
1: Mm. Burns, have you seen uh, Hook in a while? I know you weren't here last week, but...
3: Yeah, I, I have not seen it in a while, like the movie, but do not feel like it's worth the time to have me wait.
1: <laughs> right on. Let's jump into our second voicemail. We have Quinn, who wants to talk about The Thing. Go ahead, Quinn.
4: Hey, Show Me the Meaning crew. This is Squinn calling about The Thing, my favorite horror movie. I enjoyed your discussion about the uh, possible motivations or thought processes of The Thing, and I thought you might be interested in a little short story written by a Peter Watt called The Thing, which is essentially a fan fiction short story told from the perspective of The Thing uh, retelling the events of the movie. And in this case, The Thing uh, seems to actually kind of be as horrified of us as we are of it when it realizes that uh, we are not a collective consciousness and are individuals it is disgusted by the thought and it's kind of pitying us and trying to fix us um so check that out if there's anything. there's a really good audio version of it as well keep up the good work um i know you're done with carpenter but i would love to hear you talk someday about prince of darkness and in the
1: mouth of madness all right keith interesting
2: I have never read that. I'll have to check that out. That sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, I love the idea that it pities us. And in a way, it's like trying to convert us. Like it doesn't see what it's doing as being violent. It's a sort of colonial logic, you might say, right? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily presume that what it's doing is, uh, is evil. It's trying to just expand itself through conversion or through appropriation or something along those lines. But of course, in so doing, it destroys our bodily form so uh, interesting interesting
2: well then there's the other side of that one that uh as he said maybe maybe it uh sees the men in the arctic outpost as being divided as being tribal as being yeah uh, riven by their own sort of like individual paranoia and stuff it actually when he was or excuse me when when we were listening to that voicemail just now it it actually reminded me of fantastic mr fox how sometimes you get those wide landscape shots of all the burrowing and it just looks like an ant colony and you do get this notion that they're, they're all working together. They're working collectively <laughs> towards <laughs> something, but of of course, you know, uh, above ground, a few people have to suffer some lost chickens. Mm.
1: Awesome. Let's get into the next one. We've got Jason who also wants to talk about hook. What's up, Jason.
0: Hey, wisecrack. This is Jason from Arizona. Uh, I wanted to call on about hook. Um, I'm really glad that you guys are talking a lot about Spielberg as a whole Because I I think personally the most interesting thing about Hook is to look at its place in his filmography where it kind of is like the midpoint, like turning point right before he was about to go off and be like the, you know, the dramatic Oscar winning director for Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan and uh, Lincoln and Munich and those types of movies coming off of being the family and whimsy and adventure Director And Hook is just this kind of flawed, although enjoyable, like mix of those two where it's very cynical and dour at times. Obviously, Robin Williams is playing the straight man, but it's all about rediscovering the whimsy. And it is just very interesting in his filmography because I think you can maybe project some of that on the Spielberg himself as like this guy who everyone saw him as the... Like the child trapped in a man's body, of being tapping into that childlike wonder, but who saw himself as more cynical and growing up and wanting to reconnect to his youth. And so, I, th- I think it's it's kind of fascinating uh, to take that and stride with all the movies he's made and that you know the benefit of hindsight, getting to look back. So I'm glad that you guys were talking about that, and I just wanted to kind of re-
1: re- reiterate that point. Um, thanks a lot for the podcast. Uh, really loving it. Take care. If there were one, one Steven Spielberg film and you could only talk about one film to talk about, not to watch, but to talk about what one would you want to choose? Do you think, I mean, to watch, if I was only going to watch one Steven Spielberg film ever again, for me, it would be Jurassic Park. I would, I would want to watch Jurassic Park.
3: That would be my answer for both. I yeah. think Jurassic Park is the best thing he's ever been a part of. And one of the most underrated films
1: in the Western canon, which is funny. Cause it's but not really I... underrated. Right. <laughs> i <but> I still. <laughs> well, actually, Raymond made but this point last one... week. He said that he thinks that Steven Spielberg is actually underrated as a director, even though he's like one of the most. In some ways, yeah, yeah even I though think he's in one some ways he is. <laughs>
2: I think I think if anyone, uh, I, the one I always come back to is Bridge of Spies. As far as his late career output is concerned, if any other filmmaker in Hollywood had made that movie, it would have been they would have been nominated for Best Director. It would have been nominated for Best Picture, no doubt in my mind. I don't I don't know if he was nominated for either one of those. I don't think that he was. But it, it's just one of those movies that, from Spielberg, you're like, yeah, that's what he does. He makes great movies. All right, moving on. Like whatever. Um, for me, I think Jaws, I couldn't live, that's the one oh, Spielberg yeah. movie I can't imagine never watching again. Um, and, uh, to Jason's point, I think he's onto something interesting here, but if I had to pinpoint a moment where Spielberg kind of turned the corner from like standard bearer of the film brat movement to being like the sort of cinema's elder statesman, it would probably be, uh, the, the founding of DreamWorks. Like when he had an entire studio at his disposal and he became a studio boss, I think it's pretty telling that the the first movies that he produced under that shingle were like Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, uh, Artificial Intelligence, I think Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can. Like they, their tones vary, but I, I think that if you look at his DreamWorks output, especially early on, there's some stuff peppered in at other studios like indiana jones 4 and uh jurassic park 2 um but for the most part it seems like he he made a very deliberate effort once he was calling the shots to focus in on more adult oriented more oscar-friendly fare but i think uh i think he's onto something with with hook being right in that same sort of era the 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 90s there
1: Cool. Yeah, so if you want to tune in, remember you can uh, – not tune in. If you want to chime in, you can call us at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. You can leave us a voicemail, and we'll get into it uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, I do want to just quickly jump into the email mailbag because if you can't call us or if you would prefer not to, you can email us at movies at co. That's movies at co. Now, both of these are just recommendation emails, really. So uh, I'll start with Nick who says – Uh, Hello, SMTM crew. I was listening to your episode on The Thing, and Austin mentioned how he loves ambiguous endings because it leaves much to be discussed. This reminded me of Lee Chang Dong's amazing film, Burning. I would love to hear SMTM crew discuss this movie. P.S., I think it's kind of funny that Austin left Orange County to move to Australia, which is kind of like a giant Orange County. Yes, Nick, that irony is not lost on me. Um, Raymond, Michael, are you familiar with Burning, and what do you think?
2: Yeah, I uh, I think it's a good film. Uh, features Stephen young uh, nominated this year for oh. uh, Minari uh, in the the best actor category. Um, it's it is a a slow burn, if you'll pardon the pun. I mean, it, it it takes its time and it plays its cards pretty close to the chest up through the ending in a way that on a first watch uh, might be a little bit frustrating. At least it was for me, but I. As I've sort of reflected on it, I'm, I'm really excited to revisit it soon, um, especially uh, in light of his uh, his historic nomination. I think he's the, the first uh, Asian man to be nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars. Yeah.
3: Yeah, no, I've never seen it, but Nick sounds like someone I can trust, so I'm going to put that on
1: to watch it. <laughs> um, and then the last That's thing we'll be- get into is Kevin, who just quickly um, has a recommendation for a director. Uh, hey guys, I hope you're doing well, and I just wanted to say I'm really enjoying the newish team of Austin, Ryan, and Raymond since last summer. Given the recent discussion about potential oh, movie directors to focus on, I wanted to resend the email below about Richard Linkletter. I understand he probably isn't everyone's style, but he's my personal favorite director of all time for his original works rather than his adaptations. Uh, there's more details about why in this other longer email. Um, but yeah, so what do you think about Linklater? I, I, I kind of forget about Linklater, but um, that actually does excite me because I don't believe we've done a Linklater film... And I would, I would kind of enjoy Amazing. doing something from maybe the, 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 the trilogy or, um, or something like that. I don't know. What do you guys think? He kind of rips, yeah. man. I,
3: I do think Linklater rips. And I get another Austin filmmaker like Wes Anderson. Um, I'll assume that they're buds and hang out. But yeah, man. I mean, I think like Everybody Wants Some was so overlooked. And one of like the best kind of like comedies of the past 10 years. So good. The trilogy's good. I still stand for Boyhood more than I'd like to admit. That's um, great. I don't know. I, I actually think a lot of this, is, yeah, a lot of the same stuff I would say about why I like Wes Anderson is why I like Richard Linklater. He has a vision. He does his own thing. He has certain actors he likes to work with, and I kind of know what I'm getting into when I go into the theater and I see a Linklater
1: film. So, yeah, yeah. and I'm a bit obsessed with like I'm a bit obsessed with mumblecore, stripped down. Just put a camera in front of some actors, let them improvise, let them have just a a, a relationship story unfold before your eyes. That's hundred percent my vibe. So that's also
2: a filmmaker that seems like he he would be up ryan's alley we should uh we should bring that up to ryan and and link later uh, apropos of spielberg i think he's another filmmaker that is very good at oscillating between really uh you know serious-minded art house type movies like the the before sunrise sunset uh trilogy stuff like boyhood and uh he he knocks it out of the park whenever he does studio stuff like school of rock i think that's a really uh really fun
1: family yeah film. Cool. awesome well let's go ahead and get out of here where can people find you on the internet so they can debate with you about movies and stuff Raymond uh, actually this week I have a couple of things to plug oh.
2: um, yeah. if you want if you want a, a double dose of me talking about movies in your podcast feed this week I had the uh, the pleasure of joining Jack Packard and Darren Mooney over on the escapist movie podcast uh, we talked about. Uh, The Oscar nominees had just been announced the day that we recorded, so most of the conversation is uh, built around that, but we also get into uh, film culture more broadly. We talk about Zack Snyder, Justice League and all that. Uh, fiasco, masterpiece, who knows. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, it was a really fun conversation. I, I was so pleased to uh, be a guest on their show. Uh, so check that out if you're interested. That's the Escapist Movie Podcast. And uh, on a more serious note, I do just want to plug a Red Canary Song. They're a grassroots coalition of Chinese massage parlor workers who are organizing transnationally mm. to protect the rights of Asian women and sex workers. Uh, I just wanted to bring some attention to them. Uh, they've been doing good work in their field uh they could really benefit from some donations right now especially after uh, what happened yesterday in in georgia
1: all right and michael what about you brother
3: oh Raymond just said such great and real things I, i'm just michael o burns on most social media just come and like tell me why you think i'm stupid I don't, I don't a care. phenomenal twitter follow my friend absolutely and a chaotic Twitter follow, probably, <laughs> but it's fine. The- I've only had three relatives call my mom at various times <laughs> and say, I got on Twitter and we saw Michael's account and I'm concerned.
2: <laughs> and I just have to like, mom, they're old ladies. They don't get it. Because of your politics or because of your jackass style intro when you're about to skateboard down the oh, stairs? maybe that. I
3: don't know. Sometimes it's just like, sometimes you got to tweet things. Like I'll give anyone oral that shows up at my house with some waffle fries right now. And I don't know if I would do that or not, but you say it, and then a 72-year-old person says, I think Michael's up to some stuff. Yeah, I love I love when
1: you talk to people who either don't, like, they don't quite get Twitter, and they think that when you say something, they're like, what were you saying? And I'm like, honestly, I don't even remember. I was probably just responding to some trending thing, so whatever. Anyway, Raymond, send us out, it, man. Everyone gets it. I know. Send us out, brother. Live from the burrow beneath the farms of Buns Bunsen Beans, it's Show Me the Meaning!